What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 13, The Tory War. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I have to thank the new addition to the House of Lords, Baron Frederick. Like all of our patrons, he can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last time, we saw the end of the fighting in two of the three kingdoms, England and Scotland and England's satellite islands, Man, Jersey, and Guernsey, were fully secured by the Commonwealth and the new model army. Military forces loyal to Charles II had come to terms with the new regime, or they were dead, imprisoned, or exiled. Peace, of a kind, had come to Britain. Today, we will see a much bloodier peace be forced on Ireland. This period of Irish history is often called Cromwellian Ireland, or the Cromwellian Settlement of Ireland, and that makes sense. Oliver Cromwell led the conquest, and he's firmly on the path towards Lord Protector, a king in all but name. Victorian and early 20th century British historians loved the term, because it made it easier to package up all the horrors of these years, tie them neatly up with a little bow, and place the blame at Oliver Cromwell's door, and his door alone. It was all the will of one man, one who was safely dead. Of course, that simplistic approach simply doesn't fly anymore. Not just because it overlooks literally centuries of historical context before and after Cromwell's campaign, and it ignores why Cromwell held the views he did, but because Cromwell himself was far less involved in the settlement which carries his name than you might expect. He was only in Ireland for nine months after all, And although he certainly left his mark, it was his successors, albeit those appointed by, allied with, subordinate to, and part of the family of Cromwell, who took up the role, and they in turn were driven and constrained by things outside of their control. Recent scholarship has tried to address this, some even try and suggest calling it the Iotonian Settlement, but as John Cunningham has noted, there's just more interest in something being 
Cromwellian. He's such a towering figure in the popular imagination, especially as I understand it in Ireland, that even with our modern disdain for great man history, he looms over this period in a way that's hard to ignore. But if we do manage to ignore the loom, the foundation of Commonwealth rule in Ireland came about while Ireland was governed by three men. Henry Ireton, Oliver Cromwell's son-in-law, who continued the military campaign after Cromwell returned to England, and who died in November 1651. His successor was Charles Fleetwood, in more ways than one. He became Lord Deputy of Ireland in September 1652, and he also married Ireton's widow, Bridget Cromwell. Fleetwood would officially hold the position of Lord Deputy until 1657, but in 1655, Cromwell's fourth son Henry was appointed Major General and Commander of the Army in Ireland, and de facto Lord Deputy, although he was only formally granted the position two years later. I lay all this out for two reasons. The first is so that we know why I talk about Ireton in one sentence, then Fleetwood in another, and then contrast them with Henry Cromwell. The second is to help show how the government of Ireland, while remaining within the Cromwell family, was changing hands every few years, because that helps explain some of the inconsistencies of Commonwealth and then Protectorate policy in Ireland. Like I've mentioned in previous episodes, Oliver Cromwell had been determined not to face either of the two common fates for English and Scottish commanders in Ireland, humiliating defeat or political obscurity. He'd avoided the first option through a mix of logistical superiority, relentless activity, and a ruthlessness mirrored by generous surrender terms, with Drogheda and Wexford set in everyone's minds. He'd avoided the second fate, political obscurity as a directed military campaign became a protracted occupation and anti-insurgency, by declaring mission accomplished and taking off back to England, leaving his son-in-law Ireton to handle the rest. Ireton also had the good sense to uh, die before the guerrilla war really got started, and so it fell to Edmund Ludlow, Ireton's second-in-command, to pick up the baton, until Fleetwood turned up. The surrender of Galway in May 1652, coincidentally the same month that Donotta held out until, was the last major act in the Cromwellian conquest, although it was definitely not the end of resistance. What became known as the Guerrilla War, or the Tory War, I'll explain shortly, began soon after Cromwell left Ireland and it actually owes a lot to the overwhelming success of the English campaign. The rapid advance of Parliament's armies and the swift surrender of Royalist and Confederate towns shattered whatever chains of command the Irish forces had. As we've seen, few Catholic Irish commanders respected the Marquis of Ormond as their leader, and so more and more, forces which were cut off from the rest of Royalist territory didn't really try to link back up and began to act independently. The rapid advance of the English, capturing towns and castles and then moving on, left the surrounding countryside unpacified. The new model army was more than 35,000 men strong, which was a vast number of soldiers for the time. But Ireland is a big place. So despite maps showing entire counties and provinces under Commonwealth control, in reality there were forests, bogs, hills and mountains across Ireland completely hostile to English soldiers. With local knowledge and supporters, detachments and small armies had a field day attacking the exposed English supply lines, 
or attacking isolated forts, before withdrawing into the woods and bogs of the countryside. These soldiers became known by both Parliament and Royalists as Tories, from the Irish word Tory to hunt or to pursue. It had been used for decades already to describe outlaws or bandits, often those who had been dispossessed by English and Scottish plantations, who raided Irish and colonists alike. And yes, this is the same root word of the modern UK political party. Like Whigs, it was an insult that was embraced and became part of the political vocabulary of Britain later in the century. The Tories eventually established the modern Conservative Party, but keep the nickname. I make no comparison between murderous thieves operating outside the law and the guerrilla fighters in early modern Ireland. Anyway, banditry and raiding were ever-present dangers to civilians throughout the war in Ireland, and every form of authority on the island, royalists, confederates, parliamentarians, covenanters, the Catholic Church, tried and usually failed to curb their activities in their territories. Many of these earlier Tories were deserters from one army or another, but Mayholo Shukru argues that these Tories were different from those earlier bandits. Their sudden disconnect from the chain of command left them in larger groups and more unified under experienced officers. Unlike those earlier Tories, they avoided attacking or robbing Irish civilians, and instead focused on the English military machine. They would have plenty of opportunity in a target-rich environment. With Parliament controlling most of the country, on paper at least, and with an estimated 30,000 Irish veterans fighting as Tories, the guerrilla war would become a bleeding ulcer for the English. Soon after Cromwell sailed from Ireland, Tories were already raiding supply convoys and ambushing columns of soldiers coming out of Dublin. Months after Kilkenny was captured and the official front was far to the west, soldiers under Colonel Axtell were ambushed on the road and many were killed. Just weeks before Limerick surrendered to Ireton, Tories commanded by Sir Walter Dungan surprised and captured the town of Ross. At least 20 English troops were killed and the townsfolk paid £700 to stop the Tories burning Ross to the ground. The next day, with everything valuable in hand, Sir Walter pulled his forces out and went to ground. An English relief force arrived soon afterwards, but the enemy was gone. This story is repeated all over Ireland. Tories appear, raid a convoy or attack a fort, kill a few soldiers, grab what they can and disappear before the defenders can rally or a relief force can arrive. Often English troops chased Tories deep into bogs or hills, but struggled to keep up or follow through unfamiliar, difficult terrain. The local population also acted as informants for nearby Tories, passing on intel of how many soldiers were in a garrison, how well supplied they were, what they could steal, or when a convoy was due to travel. The English struggled to get that cooperation from the locals, but it did happen occasionally. We know it did because these informants used their previous service to the Commonwealth to get exemptions from the settlement. More next week. More than once in his campaigns, Ireton was forced to divert his attention from more strategic objectives, like crossing the River Shannon, in order to try and intercept Tory forces, usually failing. Through the winter of 1650-51, as the regular armies of Ireton and Ormond sat in winter quarters, Tories were operating across the island, with the bogs of Leash, 
Offaly and Tipperary being especially effective bases for Tory raiders. The English knew they were in there, but like Hereward the Wake showed at Ely five centuries earlier, knowing that the rebel base was in a bog didn't do you much good if you couldn't reach them. The Tories knew the safe paths in and out, so if Commonwealth soldiers blocked one entrance, they could just leave through another. Even the seas and rivers weren't safe. In March of 1651, a convoy of 11 ships was sailing along the River Barrow from Ross to Waterford when they were attacked by irregulars. Nine of the ships were captured. Though the formal Royalist fleet under Prince Rupert had fled the area, Irish pirates continued to ply the waters of the Irish Sea. Many were based in friendly ports in the Isle of Man, safe from Cromwell's soldiers, for now, and their small, speedy ships could outrun and outmaneuver the larger warships of the English Navy. The English soldiers slowly learned how to fight this asymmetrical war. Special cavalry units were assembled to respond to reports of mounted Tories. When Tories withdrew back into the bogs, English soldiers began to follow them deeper and deeper, learning how to traverse the terrain from their opponents. But in the final months of the main campaign against Ormond and then Clan Rickard, Tories continued to be a serious threat to English forces across the island. Even the governor of Wexford, a former Massachusetts politician who had returned to fight for Parliament, was assassinated by Tories. Government commissioners in Dublin complained to Ireton and to his bosses in London that any Englishman who travelled more than two miles from the gates of his town took his life into his hands. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Ireton, and then his successors, orchestrated a ruthless counter-insurgency campaign. To quote Parig Lenehan in Consolidating Conquest, the Cromwellian response was to draw a line of protection around their quarters, outside of which crops were liable to be burned, cattle driven off, and peasants killed as spies and enemies. This counter-insurgency strategy forced civilians to cluster in designated villages of a minimum of 30 households at least half a mile within the line, and so denied provisions to the Tories, end quote. And if that sounds like the Boer War to you, you aren't the only one. Anyone who refused to relocate was considered an enemy, and they were lucky if Commonwealth troops only killed their cattle and burned their crops. 
it was reported that hundreds of men and women in Tipperary were hanged by the local garrison under suspicion that they were aiding Tories. Tories were listed alongside wolves and priests as a persistent pest which harmed the population and spread disorder. Bounties were offered by Parliament for each, £20 for any dead publicly known Tory and 40 shillings for information. In comparison, a dead wolf would earn someone £10 or £15, female or male respectively, and a priest could earn you up to £10. Tories, wolves and priests were, quoting Spurlock, the beasts that were seen to feast on the flesh and souls of the bedraggled populace of Ireland. But, soon enough, organised Tory resistance was defeated. John Fitzpatrick, one of the more tenacious Tory leaders, was besieged in his Bog Island headquarters after Commonwealth troops crossed the frozen waters. The terms of his surrender allowed him to take his men out of Ireland for service in foreign armies. These terms, especially allowing former soldiers to leave for foreign service, would become a standard offer to surrendered Royalists and Confederates. A year later, in April 1653, Colonel Philip McHugh O'Reilly agreed terms of surrender very similar to the ones offered to Fitzpatrick, and he too soon sailed away to Spain, taking most of his army with him. Oshukru suggests that this is a good date to mark the end of the Tory War, although he does acknowledge that Tories still fought elsewhere in Ireland, but never with the same numbers that O'Reilly or Fitzpatrick had commanded. We'll talk more about Spanish service in another episode, as it's a key part of the story of transportation. But with the defeat of the major groups of Tories, notwithstanding those who still clung on, the Commonwealth had won. The cost of that victory was extortionate, and certainly not just for the Commonwealth. Between March 1649 and December 1651, at least 43,000 English soldiers had poured into Ireland, reinforcing an existing parliamentary force of about 9,000. After deaths, desertions, injuries and sickness, the English army numbered about 37,000 by the end of 1651. James Scott Wheeler estimates that 37% of the Cromwellian army died over those two and a half years alone. Over the occupation and the rest of the Tory war, many more English soldiers would be killed or wounded, fighting in the bogs and hills of Ireland, or wasting away from disease. There was a very good reason the army levellers didn't want to go to Ireland. But for as much as Irish service was a fate worth mutinying over, it was the native Irish who suffered more than any other group. An account published in London in the spring of 1652 describes the destruction the author witnessed. Quote, you may ride twenty miles and scarcely discern anything or fix your eye upon any object but dead men hanging on trees and gibbets. Charles Fleetwood, who took over from the dead Ireton and the temporary command of Edmund Ludlow, was the most ruthless of the Cromwellian Lord Deputies. His commission allowed him to execute the worst excesses of martial law, and it came with the consolation that it was, quote, being done in the time of war and out of necessity, as affairs now stand, shall not be any precedent or rule for future times, end quote. Now, ignoring the fact that's very little comfort to those civilians being summarily executed, 
I'm pretty sure I read similar clauses in the commissions of Lord Deputies Chichester and Mountjoy, that yes, they were allowed to commit appalling acts of violence, but only because events were so unusual, and it definitely would not be allowed again. Well, here it is again. And it was only with the arrival of Henry Cromwell that martial law was withdrawn. The length of the Irish War from the rebellion in 1641 through to the 1653 date, if we choose that year to represent its end, makes an accurate death toll almost impossible. But scholars have tried anyway, and their conclusions are horrifying. Of a pre-war population of about 2.1 million, roughly a third, 700,000 people, were dead by 1653. One third. That is a rate on par with the Thirty Years' War in Germany. Violence accounts for a fairly small portion of that enormous number, although as we've seen, battles, sieges, massacres and acts of casual violence were common. The vast majority of death, as in most wars, came as a side effect of a war lasting more than a decade. The other two horsemen of the apocalypse, famine and pestilence, account for them. The counter-insurgency strategy of burning fields and then moving Irish peasants off their farms and into central areas, killing those who refused, had sown the seeds of famine on a country which had already seen a decade of war. Lenehan estimates that during the Cromwellian conquest, just that period alone, between one-tenth and one-fifth of the population died of disease. These diseases were common campaigning illnesses like typhus and dysentery, and had ravaged the armies of all sides in the Irish War, as well as the civilian population, long before Cromwell arrived. But his campaign, and the arrival of tens of thousands more English troops, is usually blamed for the return of the King of Plagues, the culprit of the Justinianic Plague and the Black Death, Yersinia Pestis, Bubonic Plague. Diseases flourished in sieges, and the conquest was almost entirely a campaign of sieges. Even when towns surrendered quickly instead of suffering weeks of starvation, they were then occupied by infected troops and unintentionally spread their diseases to the civilian population. Lenehan tracks how over four years between 1650 and 1654, plague outbreaks ravaged Ireland in time with the seasons. The spread and the deaths increased in May, peaked around August and then waned in September before spiking again the following year. Unlike the other killers like dysentery, which hit larger groups of people, like towns and army camps, particularly hard, bubonic plague exacted similar levels of death, according to population, regardless of whether it hit a city or a hamlet. The malnourished population, struggling to find food after a decade of the ravages of war, and then compounded by deliberate Commonwealth strategy, left them especially vulnerable to disease. This was all made much worse by the political decisions of the Commonwealth and Protectorate, specifically transplantation. We'll get into the details of that next week, but since we're on the subject of disease, the policy will ensure that tens of thousands of people, entire communities, were moving across Ireland and taking their diseases with them. Yersinia Pestis could not have asked for a better way to spread. Not that there was a huge amount of sympathy for the Irish among their English conquerors. The judgment of collective guilt was a common feeling, 
even among those who favoured more lenient treatment of the Irish, and any moderation from English leaders was quickly cast aside once reminded of the atrocities of the Irish rebellion. After the citizens of Galway were offered generous terms, the army's scoutmaster-general, outraged at the leniency, presented the Dublin government with a selection of the depositions taken in the aftermath of the uprising. The brutality of the Irish attested to in those documents had the desired impact. Dublin sent word to London, and soon the Commonwealth Parliament would set the tone for the coming peace. In addition to any objectives of justice, the coming settlement had a ruthlessly practical intent. The reconquest of Ireland had cost the English taxpayer a small fortune. Actually, scratch that. There was nothing small about the amount of money the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland had cost. Hundreds of thousands of pounds were spent on paying, outfitting, and feeding those tens of thousands of soldiers. The tax administration of the English Parliament was professional, efficient, and utterly outclassed anything the English had seen before. And even then, the system was creaking. A different regime might have given up on completely reconquering the island. Terms, other than complete and total surrender, might have been offered to the Irish, saving the English treasury a fortune, and human lives, of course. But the Commonwealth had robbed Peter to pay Paul, or at least had promised to rob Peter to pay Paul. As we'll see next week, the government owed a lot of people a lot of money, including people with guns, and they didn't have that money. What they did have, with Ireland fully conquered, was land. Cromwell once described a reconquered Ireland as a clean paper, and one which the English could redraw in their image. The settlement which took his name would attempt to do just that. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duke of Hanson, Harold Hanson, the Marquess of Dorset, Thomas Kessler, and the Earl of Montgomery, David Montgomery. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to join their ranks and listen to the podcast without ads. Remember that you can join the mailing list to get news about the show by going to the link in the description. For other great podcasts on the Airwave network, check out airwavemedia.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>